This evening's talk is called Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of Not-Self. The looking glass being uh, a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years during my childhood and then on through adolescence and into my teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back and smaller and smaller myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, kind of endlessly. And as a child and an adolescent and a teenager, I was amazed and uh, fascinated and intrigued by this dream. And if I thought about it very much, um, I'd begin feeling pretty perplexed. (laughs) But mostly, I was really just interested. Interested enough that um, it's the only dream that I clearly remember uh, experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when, at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I had to write, uh, was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian religions. And right then I had the very distinct uh, feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking at myself in the mirror looking in the mirror, became the gist that the direction of my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics or the three truths of all phenomena that I've mentioned a few times already uh, during this retreat. The first being anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, and every phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. The second universal characteristic being that of all things, all phenomena, being dukkha, the Pali word meaning ultimately unsatisfactory. The unsatisfactory, the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of all things in this world. Because of nothing being secure, sustaining, in the outer world of experience, relationships, places, situations, material objects, and nothing sustaining in the world 
of all of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it. None of it offering a sustaining sense of pleasure or happiness. But rather the dukkha, we could say, of the round and round and round, of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good, seemingly bad, liking and disliking. The dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of the rounds of conditioned existence. Simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things. So this evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch. The most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a, a subtle or maybe a more overt fear. In its essence, this characteristic, this truth, is so basic and so simple, and that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through the veil, lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea of belief that separates us from this reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it, within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or the mental experience within the, within the evap- context of the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs, to relinquish attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished ideas and identifications. It's important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw ourselves out. That's not what it's about. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe 
to be ourself. Everything we think of and believe to be other selves just doesn't, simply doesn't exist uh, in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. Our so-called self is in constant flux. Just like the very fast-moving, fast-flowing mountain river on the other side of the highway that I stood and looked at for a while this evening. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality, that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha. He wouldn't discuss uh, questions that didn't uh, directly deal in some way with understanding confusion and anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, a way of life. A teacher of the practices that directly lead to an experiential understanding of the truth, an experiential understanding of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to inner peace. The essential aim of the teachings and the practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such a sincerity and humility and willingness that we begin to see ourself more accurately. We begin to see through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves, without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached to them, when we're averse to them, without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually quite simple. Maybe not so easy, but really, really quite simple. And we've been practicing it with the drawing, seeing drawing, in a very simple way. So, for instance, we're sitting. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Remembering or memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are merely are just themselves. 
there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no true sustaining happiness. And in the same way, vain, we could say that there's no true sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and that we experience confusion. The Chinese sage Nan Shin said, by not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so. We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. (laughs) We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look in the mirror at our self (coughs) without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation, without investing in a layer of meaning over top of what we see? So, for instance, we think in terms of my foot or my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my pain, my thoughts, my joy, my friends, my house, etc. This is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become. This is how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this, what I just described, my everything, (laughs) that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that their not self is seeing self. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So in truth, there's really nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, myself looking at myself, in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, 
<clears throat> the tightly grasped belief that there's a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things isn't any longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention? It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what's being observed, what's being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling. Merely heat. Merely an ache in the chest. Or a tingling moving through the body. Merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes spoken of. No two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes can the power of a deeply rooted can the power of deeply rooted egocentric thoughts habits and self-centered inclinations be loosened and broken up reduced let go of relinquished and finally eliminated It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self. Not self, no self. And then, finally, or just for a moment, it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in fear of losing something for a moment there's nothing no thing to cling to for a moment the heart the mind is free and from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. 
it's a heavy load. It's a burden to carry ourself around. The body and the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes, all the fears. We really shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of life in the form of thoughts and feelings and various opinions and perceptions and beliefs and believing that they're mine, that they're me, that they're myself. (coughs) There's a kind of sting that we sometimes feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this uh, burden with a sense of ownership and a sense of identification. The Buddha offered a metaphor in relationship to this of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake and a poisonous snake, but the poison hasn't touched you. It hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in the world as is appropriate. We keep looking and we keep seeing. Living life, and in fact, living life much more freshly and fully and creatively, right in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher, right here on retreat and in our life outside of retreat. As we lift the cup and fill it with water, as we sit and as we move and as we see and draw and write, as we receive experience and notice, as we receive the sensations of the in and the out breath and simply know it, as we receive and simply know the gap between the out breath and the in breath. poem by the Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield and she calls this only when I am quiet and do not speak only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near shy the scissors and spoons the blue mug hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shine of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I 
hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off as I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. As if they believed it's possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, and that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. Do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath the cool sensation of the in-breath? Is that me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? We might think, okay, I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind, certainly my consciousness, that, that's me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things that most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, <coughs> our conscious mind. As these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect, letting go of interpreting with the intellect, and just simply open and receive the words, just simply and directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? <coughs> Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? <coughs> Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? 
is the mind me. What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? very nature of mind is that it's unformed, unborn, as it's sometimes spoken about. It's without color or shape. Look into your own mind. It's like experiencing zero, which might not be very appealing sounding, a very appealing sounding experience (coughs) to many people. In the opening line of a book by a mathematician, Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Looking through it, you see the world. Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. He does that a lot. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away moment by moment by moment. It too is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors, dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It, too, is dependent on the mental labels, the constructs and clinging that arise in the conscious mind through contact. I'd like to share the uh, short discourse on non-self, the non-self characteristic that the uh, Buddha offered um, over 2,500 years ago, to his first uh, six disciples, very shortly after he was enlightened. And he repeated this teaching many, many times throughout his 45 years of teaching. It's a series of questions, actually, (coughs) that we can take to heart as a practice. And I suggest you listen to it with a very, um, listen to it from the heart. I'll put it that way.
On one occasion, the Buddha was dwelling at Benares in Deer Park, and there he addressed the monks of the group of five, it's five, not six, sorry, of the group of five, and said this. Monks' material form is non-self. For if monks' material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of material form, let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. But because material form is non-self, material form leads to affliction. And it is not possible to determine of material form, let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. And he goes on, feeling is non-self, and repeats the same words. Perception is non-self. Intentional or volitional formations are non-self, meaning thoughts, words. Actions are non-self. Consciousness is non-self. For if monks' consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, Consciousness leads to affliction, and it's not possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. What do you think, monks? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. I'm reading this formally. This is the formal sutta. Is what is impermanent unsatisfactory or suffering, he used the word suffering, or that's the way it's translated in this particular teaching, is what is impermanent suffering, meaning unsatisfactory, or happiness, suffering, venerable sir, is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself, no, venerable sir, is feeling impermanent or impermanent, and he goes through perception, intentional volition or formations, and consciousness. Is consciousness consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent unsatisfactory or happiness? Unsatisfactory or suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent unsatisfactory and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. Therefore, monks, any kind of material form, feeling, (coughs) perception, volitional formations, and any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and all consciousness should be seen as it really is. with correct wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Seeing thus, monks, the Buddha is still speaking to the group of five, seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, with volitional formations, disenchanted with consciousness. And I think, just to mention the word, the opposite of disenchanted is being enchanted. (coughs) So hear it from that perspective. 
becoming disenchanted, he or she becomes unattached. And often the word is translated as dispassionate. Basically means not attached. Through dispassion, his or her mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. She, he understands, destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What has to be done has been done. There's no more coming back to any state of being. This is what the Buddha said. Elated, those monks delighted in the Buddha's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the group of five were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. And then there were six fully enlightened ones, six arhants, six accomplished ones in the world. I know for some of you the the, uh, suttas are a new experience. You have to hear them or listen to them with a kind of an open heart and open mind. The conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment by moment, just like every other conditioned phenomena. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors, as I mentioned, no matter how gross or subtle this object may be. And to make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six aspects or what are called the six doors of consciousness. And these six doors are eye consciousness, very simple really, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness, mind phenomena. There's a Tibetan teaching that I like a lot. It says, all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional. And that because of this, it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering, that leads to unsatisfactoriness. There are uh, two short conversations that the Buddha had with um, his chief disciple, Ananda, that I'd like to share with you regarding this discussion. In the first uh, short little conversation, the Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, It said, the world, the world. In what way is it said, the world, the world? And the Buddha responds to Ananda. He says, whatever is subject to disintegration, Ananda, is called the world in the noble one's discipline. And what is subject to disintegration? The I, Ananda, is subject to disintegration. Forms, I consciousness, 
eye contact, whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition. That too, it's subject to disintegration. And then he goes through the ear, the nose, all the different doors. The mind, whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, that too is subject to disintegration. Ananda, this is called the world. And then there's another little conversation. Ananda says, right after that, asks the Buddha, Venerable Sir, it said, empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said, empty is the world? And the Buddha responds to Ananda, It is Ananda because it is empty of self, and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. Eye consciousness, eye contact, mind consciousness, whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither pleasant nor painful, that too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that is said, empty is the world. As awakening beings, can we begin to directly experience and know the changing, interdependent, and empty nature of all things? And again, the mirror of the Dhamma, and this is from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage. And these are his words, maybe her words, I don't know if it's a him or her. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things and the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know there's really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. And a really wonderfully simple poem by contemporary uh, Buddhist poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full, sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow.
As we move into the last portion of this evening's talk, I'll offer two brief guided meditations. Beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image uh, in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. (coughs) And if an image doesn't come easily, for you, um, any of you, then just simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with closing your eyes. and visualizing or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant, crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflected, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. a boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. Now let the image or the felt sense dissolve. 
the intricately interwoven, interdependent tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self, no-self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of wisdom of not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we find that more and more often we act only from the heart of compassion because of a growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There's only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. There's no separation, no isolated, independent you, no separate me. Eighth-century Buddhist monk Shanti Deva expresses it like this: I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own, and I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. So again, it's helpful if you close your eyes. In the mind's eye, or the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky, or sky-like space. and allowing yourself to relax deeply and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving and changing shape and dissolving and new clouds appearing and disappearing.
in this visualization or felt sense, let the openness of the sky, the vast openness, rest in the eye of wisdom. And not fixating on any cloud at all, just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the vast, clear, empty, endless sky-like space to just simply rest in the heart, the eye of wisdom. And now let the image fade away and just sit for a moment letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing awareness to be very spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now for a moment quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself not looking for anything, just aware of awareness itself. Who's aware? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing, and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and at the same time come close and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in, and we keep looking whether we're standing or sitting, moving or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things, 
are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in an ongoing or sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer, open, spacious, and more precise at the same time. Looking back and back to the source of itself, back to the source of all things. And instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, or some solid rendition of I or me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. And in this there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential heart of being, or what's sometimes referred to as emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease. Even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and all around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, the greatest problems, the greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, of being isolated, a separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering the cause of the core loneliness that so many, many, many human beings feel. In relationship to this, I'd like to tell you a true story. A friend of mine um, was suffering uh, with this core loneliness, and so he decided to seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life, at the age of about 40. And with advice from friends, he picked a therapist who had um, a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called to make an appointment, he was told by the therapist's secretary that it would be helpful if he brought um, some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his uh, concern with him for this first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office Uh, toting a huge load of baggage. (laughs) 
of all different sizes and shapes and colors. Mm -hmm. And then he set them down in the waiting room. (laughs) (laughs) And then he went out to his car and he got another load. (laughs) And he piled this on top of the first. This is true. And he piled this on top of the first load. And he told me, uh, after the fact, and he told the therapist that he had to go around uh, collecting baggage from lots of friends and family because he said he didn't have enough of his own. (laughs) So when it came time to uh, go into the therapist's office, he, of course, took all of the baggage with him and piled it up between him and the therapist. (laughs) And at some point... Uh, During this first session, the therapist, in her great wisdom actually, asked my friend to open up all the baggage that he'd brought in with him. So he did. He did this and found there was nothing inside any of it. (laughs) (laughs) A really wise therapist. It's sort of, of course, uh, certainly not every client uh, that you can do this with. But this man was very obviously ready for such a pointing out. He also has a great sense of humor, obviously. (laughs) When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this really simple reality, Often at first there can be kind of a poignancy, kind of sometimes a very deep poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there can be a sense of a great relief. Like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and just simply set it down. There's an old uh, teaching story about this that I really like. It's a story of a woman who um, had practiced for many, many years and had some powerful and expansive and even some illuminating uh, experiences. But still, she hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and feeling that there wasn't very much time left. And so she she really wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up uh, to the top of a mountain, a particular mountain, to see the wise one who she said she had heard uh, was able to turn the mind, to turn the heart to the truth. And as she was ending the, uh, nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and she called out to him. And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on the top of the mountain and explained that she was on her way up to see this person because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted ultimate wisdom. 
so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained that she wanted to uh, awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and all of her anguish and all of her striving. She told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. While the old man stood still and he very briefly looked at her and then taking his time he slowly turned around and continued down the mountain but just for a few steps and then he stopped again and briefly stood still and again slowly turned around towards the woman and then he very carefully and very slowly took the satchel off his back set it down on the ground turned around again and walked on down the mountain towards the village Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in the world as is appropriate. We keep exploring, seeing and understanding, living life, and in fact, living life more freshly, fully, and creatively, right here and now. And ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And so there are two wings, we could say, of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of an unfettered, pure awareness in relationship to all of the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom that comes about through our experiential insight into the not self-nature, the empty essence of all things. The other wing is the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things, this being the relative aspect of understanding not-self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. To really, truly fly free, we need both wings. And the great Zen master Dogen 
tells us to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. To be enlightened by all things is to remove the barrier between self and other. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with two pieces from a collection of of the Buddha's words from a collection called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. And the uh, the first inspired utterance is this. Seclusion is happiness for one content who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second inspired utterance from the Buddha is this. And it's um, it's a conversation. It's the Buddha speaking with one of his uh, disciples whose name was Bahia. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that, indeed, there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that there is indeed no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit silently for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.